Amen. It's his undeserved favor that gives us life. You may be seated, and I'd ask you, if you would, to take your Bible and turn with me to 1 John once again. We are gloriously plowing through this beautiful little letter of the Bible that shows us so much about what it means to walk with God. Our men are coming forward to give you an outline. If you don't have an outline, everyone needs one. Um, There is just no way to easily take this in without a little bit of help. And I want to encourage you to take your outline, take a pen, and take your Bible as we run again to the little letter of 1 John. Now this morning I want us to do just a moment of review. And we do that for a few different reasons, to remind us what's been in the letter that we've already studied. And the reason that that is important is you need to study the Bible in context. You can't just take verses out and lift them out of their context. That is fraught with problems. And so what we want to do, each time we move on to a new section of Scripture, we want to remember what the letter is saying, and so we do that right now with our review. So if you would, notice there in the box on the page, there is the text that we're about to look at, but we want to go to the review. First of all, the author is the Apostle John. He was a disciple, and he was also what? He was an apostle. That means he was called out to do what he was called to do, to do what God has called him to do as a proclaimer of the gospel in that first century. Look at the next part. The genre. What type of literature is this? It's an open letter. It's a letter to all of the churches um, that are in the New Testament world there at the end of the first century. The writing style. Now, John is the most artistic writer in the New Testament, so it's artistically done. We see the way he weaves themes and he weaves words together in a very beautiful way. He's repeating the truths. He's interweaving them. It's layered, and he's progressively revealing his message. And so John is a very interesting letter to study because of that. And it's so beautiful, like the gospel that he wrote as well. Notice the next one, the setting. This is a critical transition time at the end of the eyewitness era. Here's, this is about 60 years after Jesus died, rose again, and ascended to the Father. So the church has been growing for 60 years. The gospel's been going out across what is modern-day Turkey and Greece and Italy and down across North Africa. The gospel's been going out into the Mediterranean world. By now, there's thousands of churches around the Mediterranean world. There's hundreds of thousands of believers, perhaps. And we see that there are issues that come into the church. And John, listen to this, as the last eyewitness who had seen Jesus with his eyes, the last disciple alive, he is writing to them a letter. And he's writing them a letter that is very, very important, dealing with the issues now that 60 years of walking in church life um, he needs to deal with. So we see the first part of this is doctrinal problems. There were things that some, some churches were believing the wrong things. There were certain people in churches that were believing false doctrines. And we've talked about that. As always, false teachers were rising up. That's true of the Old Testament, and that's true of the New Testament, and that's true of all of Christian history, and that's true today. There's always been those who refute the truth of God. Is that not what Satan first said to Eve? 
He sought to deceive her and bring false information to bring questioning of God's truth and what God had said. So there's always been the rebuttal toward God in a fallen world. Notice this. So there's new heresies that are circulating around, and John is dealing with some of those new heresies. We've looked in depth already at a few of those. Notice that there's not only doctrinal problems, but there's also behavioral problems in the church. So it's not only they believing the wrong things, but they're, they're doing the wrong thing. There, there's, there's aspects of that. And here's one of the big issues that were there, and we've studied this over the last few weeks. Many were loving the world instead of loving God and the others around them. So they were, they were looking at the shiny objects of the world right in front of them and gravitating toward those. In verse 5 of chapter 1, we see perhaps the central premise of the entire letter. And I want us to read these italicized in this point together. So let's, uh, let's get ready to read this. Clear your throat. Here we go. We're going to read this. In verse 5, it's perhaps the central premise of the entire letter. And what does verse 5 say? It says this. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now that is the most important central premise that John is getting across to us, that God is good. That he is good and righteous. And that, that sets the tone for everything else that we need to think about, everything else that we need to do, everything else that, in the way that we need to live. This is the central premise that John wants the church to continue to recognize that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Satan always wants to question that. Satan always wants to come and cause you to think ill of God. And so one of the key things that John, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, would tell to us to remember that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So far, the Apostle John wants us to, and each one of these have at least one sermon in them, but notice this, and the scriptures where they come from is over on the right-hand side. So it starts off in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and it goes all the way down to last Sunday, chapter 2, verse 15 through 18. Let's remember what's been said. So far, John has said, he wants us to realize, he wants us to know the reality and the centrality of Christ in all things. So the greeting starts off in that way. It's really proclaiming the reality and the centrality of Christ in everything. Number two, the, the perfect nature of God. That's what we've just been looking at in verse five, that he is light and there's no darkness. He is perfectly good. Well, after he proclaims that he is perfectly good, John also has to remind us that we have a sinful nature of humanity. Now, that's a very unpopular message in this day and time. We want everyone to say, well, man is basically good. That's what everybody in the world says. Well, man is basically good and getting better. And I'm like, how can you believe that? Just turn on the television and just watch the news. We're not basically good in getting better. Go down to the police station and read through all the reports that Oscar and all those guys have to write. You'll find that man is not basically good in getting better. If you go to the, if you go to the hospitals and you, you, you look at all of the things that are going on there. I mean, my, my daughter who now works in medicine, she said, Dad, it's just amazing. There's a tremendous amount of what the medical community deals with, not talking about COVID, but just in general life, a tremendous amount of what the medical community deals with 
because of sin. Because of sin, because of decisions that people made. Anger and addictions and this and that and all of the things that the, the hospital and our medical problems often have to do with even our sinfulness. So the sinful nature of humanity is something that John is saying, look, if anyone says that you're, that you're not sinful, if anyone says that you have no sin, you don't know God. You don't know the truth. The truth is not in you. And we see that in verses 6, 8, and 10 of the chapter 1. Notice the next one. Here's a great one, though. The forgiven nature of those who are in Christ. So John is writing, saying, yes, God is holy. We are not, but he will forgive. He will forgive to those who come in faith to him. Praise the Lord. Look at the next one. It is impossible for true Christians, excuse me, excuse me. It is possible for true Christians to have Christ's victory over sin. Say amen to that. That's, that. Praise God. We've just been singing about that. That through Christ we have victory over sin. Chapter 2, verse 1. And then we looked at the fact that true Christians have true love for God and others. John says that. If you, that, that anyone who loves God and anyone who comes and loves his brother, that's a person walking in the light. But if we don't love God and we don't love others, then we are not walking in the light. And that's the next one. Those who hate others are not true Christians. We've looked at that very, very much in depth. TJ preached on the fact that true Christians find all their encouragement in Christ. So little children refers to the whole church in John's letter. He says it five times. Then he deals with the mature believers, and then he deals with those that are younger believers. And he's saying, look, God calls you to walk with him and be encouraged in Christ. Last Sunday, we looked at this, that true Christians do not love the, and I'm using a special word here, fleeting world. If something is fleeting away, what does that mean? It's passing away. It's slipping away. Remember the old song, time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into the what? into the future. I always thought that was an interesting phrase. But, you know, I, and I've always thought about time and as part of that 1970s rock song. Um, time just keeps on slipping away. And it's not just that time is slipping away. Listen, the world is slipping away. The world is slipping away and it is passing away. But the word and truth of God stands forever. And those who love God will stand in eternal life with him. And so true Christians do not love the fleeting world, but instead love what God has. Now, it's interesting. Last week in verse 17, that's what it says. The world is passing away. Now, that is a phrase that leads to verse 18, which we begin today. This new section. We're going to study verse 18 through 25 for probably the next three sermons. So just look with me in verse 18. This is a transition to a look at eschatology. And so he is going to make some statements here that have to do with not only the present moment, but he's going to refer to what is coming in the future. Eschatology is the study of end times or last times. Things. And so we get a, a hint of that here, and John is wanting to challenge the church and inform the church in what is happening now, but also what is to come. So let's look with, look with me in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18. 
children. You remember he uses five times he calls the readers children. He's referring to the whole church. By now, John's in his 90s. He's probably 92, 93 years old, we think. And so he's older. He's older than anybody that's really around him. Certainly, he's the last eyewitness. And so he's earned the right from going to be the youngest disciple at the time when Jesus was alive to being the last one standing. So he writes, in his old age, he writes, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have what? Have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. Verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have knowledge, and you all have knowledge. Verse 21. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Can you underline verse 23? We're going to study that in two Sundays. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. You can underline that. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us. What is it? eternal life. Can you say amen to that? That's beautiful, isn't it? Look at that last verse. And this is the promise that he has made to us. What is it? Eternal life. It sounds too good to be true, but praise God that it's not. I mean, my, my brain can't even wrap around those two words. But he has a glorious plan. If, as Jim prayed, he can create the stars with his words. If he can create black holes, and he can create all that we see in a telescope or a microscope, in all the glory of his grand power, he can give us eternal life, and indeed he does. So this is a glorious picture where we're looking at the things that are to come. This section is dealing with the things that are to come. And there's some problems with the present um, that are touched here and that are going to come and be a part of that. Notice here with me how this section begins. In verse 18, he says, children, it is the last hour. The last hour refers to the time that is between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. You say, well, yeah, I've never understood that. Talking about the last hour, but that's 2,000 years ago. That's a long hour. Yeah, that's kind of the, you remember with me that a day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. He's not bound really by time in this. And we think in time, um, we're, we're so bound by that. We think in terms of that so very often. But here we're beginning to see that this is a whole era that since Jesus died, paid for our sin, rose again, 
ascended to the Father, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, this begins the last time. This begins the last hour. And the church has been in this. In fact, Jesus would talk about that. Jesus would say to them that he, he gives a very uh, definite picture of some things that are going to happen in the destruction of the temple and some things that are going to transfer right there. And he says, surely these things are going to happen in this generation. And so we do know that after he ascended to the Father, Titus came in, seizes Jerusalem, destroys the temple. It was completely finished, hasn't been rebuilt up until now. And during this time, the, there's been a great spreading of the Jewish people. And we see that those things happen just as Jesus would say in that generation. Well, after that, there are some things that are predicted to happen before he comes again. And what's amazing is those things that have to happen before he comes again can happen very quickly. And that's why Christians, for the last 2,000 years, are correct in their assessment of what God has said in his prophecy to be ready for his return at any moment. He could return at any moment. His, his coming will not be announced by anything except a trumpet. And the trumpet will blast, he will return, and then we will see the end of the end take place. And all that is predicted in this, and we're going to see part of that as we look at this idea of Antichrist that comes into this. But notice what he's saying, that children, this is the last hour, which is this whole time period of the church from Jesus' ascension to the Father to the present. Now notice this as well. This should not be confused with the age to come. The age to come is a phrase that is used in various iterations um, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, though there's only New Testament passages here, and it encompasses the inauguration of being with the Lord in all of eternity. So some of those events that transition us into the moment of heaven and eternity. So he's saying it is the last hour. That's not an inaccurate statement whatsoever. They are in the, we are in the same time period that the readers of John was reading as well. Not only does it say, look at verse 18. Let's look at the box at the top of the page there on page 2. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Now, we're, that, that can be a curious thing. Average Christian hasn't really in-depth studied that. That's what we're going to do over the next few minutes. You're going to understand that, I think, quite clearly. Let's look at the first part there where it says, Antichrist is coming. It doesn't say the Antichrist or an Antichrist. There is no definite article in front of that. It is just simply saying, the Greek says, Antichrist is coming. And then it says, and so now many Antichrists have come. Now, there's a few things we can learn from that. One, the first one is not on your sheet. But here's one of the things that we can know. That word, Antichrist, at this point, if for John to use that, they knew and they, they, they were familiar with that term. The church, for him to use that and not have to really explain it very much, the church was used to talking about the opposition of God. 
the opposition of Christ. So in church life, as they were growing through those, gener- through those decades and generations of the early church, they were aware of not only the prophecies and the words that Jesus talked about of the Antichrist, but they were aware also, and he's reminding them here, he's bringing it into full color, that not only is there an Antichrist to come that is going to wreak some havoc and is going to be used actually by God to perform his will in the end time issues, but we're also going to see here that there is a spirit of Antichrist in the church, in, in John's day, and in our day. So I want us to notice this. First of all, let's look at the Antichrist. And that's one that's the first blank that is there. There is the Antichrist. And this is also known as the lawless one or the beast. And you say, okay, wow, we're getting back into um, the, the real eschatology that maybe some of you heard about and some of you have studied growing up. Others of you have devoted a great deal of time to that. And others you, of you have been scared to death of thinking about um, the issues of eschatology. But let me just tell you that as we look at the Word of God and as we look at His grand and glorious plan and we look at the grace of Christ that saves us, a Christian has no need to fear the prophecies that God is going to bring about. In fact, we have every reason to rejoice that God knows what he's doing and he has promised good things. There's no doubt that there are difficult days at the end of the end, at the end of this last hour. But we also recognize that the salvation of God is just as real then as it is today and it's just as real then as it will be in eternity. So we have, we have every hope. God knows how to take care of his children, and we need to be diligent to learn what he has said. So in John's little letter of encouragement to the early church, of warning to the early church, here comes some of the warning. Children, it's the last hour, and as you've heard, the Antichrist is coming. He's saying you need to be aware that they have already come and that they are among us now. Let's notice this and recognize this, that Satan and his demonic forces are the original beings of rebellion against God. Satan and his demonic forces are the original beings of rebellion against God. There is no question as you read and you see the rebellion that happens in heaven, the the ejection from heaven of Satan and a third of the heavenly hosts, and then we see... Um, the result of that upon the earth, and including the temptation of Adam and Eve to the present of where we are in our day and time, he has been the ringleader of rebellion against God. The devil is the original architect of the anti-God agenda. He is always there in the presence of the anti-God agenda. And this is true in every age and every generation. He has always raged against God, and he rages against God still. The third one. Satan is the energizer of the innumerable antichrists. We can't even number how many antichrists there have been that have followed his lead. So through the ages, there has always been those who are anti-Messiah, who are anti-salvation, who are anti the grace and truth of God. And then the last one I want you to notice here, a satanic individual, 
will be risen up or will be raised up who will deceive the world and defy God. So that's very clear as we begin to look through the scriptures from Zechariah to Daniel to Revelation and the words of Jesus as well. We see that there will be an individual that will be raised up and this individual will deceive the world. Now, in our church, we actually believe in reading the Bible, which is the reason that we have the printout, which is the reason, and you can turn in your Bible to 2 Thessalonians, that's fine, but I print it here because I want you to see it. I want you to mark it. I want you to know I've read about that. I see what he's saying. I see what this text is actually referring to in the Bible. So I want you to read about the beast. I want you to read about the Antichrist that is mentioned here. Look up at verse 18 in the top. It says, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming. Let's study that. There's the recognition that the Antichrist is coming. This is that individual that is coming. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 12. And the Apostle Paul writes this. Notice the screen in front of you. The Apostle Paul writes of the victorious return of Christ and the demise of Satan, his Antichrist, and who? The unredeemed. Those who do not love righteousness. Those who do not love God. And so look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1 through 12 on your sheet. Now concerning the the, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. So well before John writes this, 2 Thessalonians is written by Paul, and he's saying you don't need to be upset about the things that are to come. Do you remember that? I mean, I was just saying that a few moments ago. Look at verse 2. Not not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. He's saying, even if somebody writes something and they make it look like it's from me, I don't want you to be upset. You're gonna, you need to listen that I, uh, I want you to be at, at peace with what God has planned. Look at verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And underline it, the man of lawlessness is revealed. So this this beast, this antichrist is going to be revealed. The son of destruction. Look what he does in verse 4. Who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And so many would say that the temple will be rebuilt and Satan himself will, excuse me, the Antichrist himself will go into the temple, take that seat, the world will see it, and he will proclaim himself as the one who is God. Look with me in verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Verse 6. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. 
Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So the Holy Spirit is restraining the Antichrist from doing what he's going to do up until he is ready to do it. Look at verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. What does that mean, the breath of his mouth? The idea of his word. And Martin Luther gets this right. Martin Luther, when he writes, a mighty fortress is our God. What is going to fell Satan and all of his powers and all of his minions and all of his people? What is going to fell them? The word of Jesus. His words, the word of the Messiah. Look at this. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So even Paul is wanting the church to be encouraged that, look, for true believers who are waiting on the true Christ to return, you have nothing to fear. He is going to come, and he will vanquish the enemy. He will vanquish the evil one. Look at verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. So he's going to have power. He's going to have false signs. Many are going to be deceived by these things. Look at verse 10. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. That's for those who don't know Christ. That's for those who are not redeemed. Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Verse 11. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Verse 12. In order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now there is so much that we could look at there, but the main thing I want you to see is, is that there is an antichrist. We see that from the writings of Paul to the writings of John to the words of Jesus to the writings of the Old Testament, we see this antichrist is a very real deceiver who will come upon the world. Now, over the last 2,000 years, some of the early Christians in the Roman Empire, who would they have thought was the Antichrist? Thank you. Nero. That would have been one of the first ones, right? Claudius. Claudius was another one of the emperors that was just persecuting the church, wreaking havoc on all that was right and holy and, and just. So it would have probably been a natural thing that Nero or Claudius or some of the others would have been thought to be the Antichrist. But then there were others, if you go back and you read through Christian history, there were many who would say in the 8th and 9th century, they would say it was Muhammad. Muhammad has come and he's wreaking havoc upon the Christian world and he's spreading things that are not true. And then there were others who would say Napoleon Bonaparte was so powerful in his sweeping military might and come sweeping through Europe. There were many who would say well, Napoleon, th th this much power hasn't been seen before. Th this must be the Antichrist. What about Benito Mussolini? Or who else? Adolf Hitler. This must be the Antichrist. Even in our lifetimes, there's been people we've looked at in their power and in their pomp and in their whatever. You just think, wow, man, that's, he's gaining a lot of traction. Um, but my friends, all of those efforts have been in vain. Let me tell you, when the Antichrist comes, I believe that Christians who are in the Word are going to be well warned within their heart, this is not from God. 
I, I don't believe that Christians who are well, in the, well endowed in the Word of God and who are walking by the Spirit of God, I don't believe that any of the elect are going to be deceived in that. I believe that we have to be diligent to be in the Word. I believe that we have to be diligent to be with the body of Christ, walking in the truth, so that when the counterfeit comes up, we can see it. The way that we know the counterfeit is by knowing the true God. And so our familiarity with the truth of God and the person of God and the work of God is what will warn us of not believing and following a charismatic, powerful leader that seems to perform signs and wonders that the whole world will go googly-eyed over and follow him. And so we, we just want to see here that there is a strong delusion that is sent, but that is not to God's people. Look at Revelation in chapter 13. The Apostle John, look at the screen in front of you, um, this summary. The Apostle John, or maybe I didn't put that in a, in a slide, but um, just notice that Revelation 13 and verse 1 through 6, the Apostle John writes of the Antichrist and his blasphemies against God and his peoples. That's what he's going to do. And we see that in chapter 13, verse 1 and 1 through 6. Notice what it says. And I saw a what? I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems, that's crowns, on its horns and blasphemous, underline that, and blasphemous names on its heads. Verse 2. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Verse 3, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Now this imagery truly is a a very, very cryptic imagery that we don't, we don't know exactly how to take every aspect of this. But notice here in verse 4, what did they do with that beast? They worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Verse 5, and the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty, that means very proud and arrogant, haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Wow, that's a long time. Verse 6. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against who? Against God. Blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven. You see, that's God and his people. So yes, we should be concerned that the beast will aim part of his blasphemies and part of his hatred, not only against God, but also against his peoples. We can also see in Daniel and Zechariah and Matthew the words of the Lord Jesus describing that this beast will come, this antichrist will come. But this evil one, fill this in, this evil one is preceded in every generation by many others who are, who are also in Satan's, fill it in, spirit 
of rebellion. And so we don't have to just wait for the end of the end to see the beast. We can see the attitude and the spirit of the beast in our present day. And it has to do with coming and seeing the truth, rejecting the truth, and then fighting against the truth. And so let's look back up on the end, last page, page 3. Look at the top of the page in verse 18. Look what it says. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, what does it say there now? So many Antichrists have come. Now I want you to see what this means. And many Antichrists have come. There are Antichrists who have already come. Fill that in. So there's some who have already come. We see this in Matthew 24, 1 John 2, 2 John chapter 6, or verse 7, and Jude verses 1 through 4. Remember when we studied the book of Jude? When we studied the book of Jude, it was, it's just this short little book of the Bible, one chapter of the Bible, but it was so amazing to us. We'd finished the book of John, the gospel of John, and then we went straight into Jude, and Jude was not just saying, hey, early church, understand this, that false teachers are coming, he's saying the false teachers are here. It's not just that they're coming. Jesus warned us that they were coming. The apostle Paul warned us that they were coming. And Jude, when he writes to the churches, he says, guess what, folks? They're here. And that was in the first century. And we marveled as a church, as we studied, for, as we studied the book of Jude, we marveled at how that wasn't just a pertinent 2,000 years ago, but that was pertinent all the way through church history to our present day. In, in a similar way, that is what we see here. You see, fill this in. The Antichrists are false teachers and false believers who have left Christ's church. They are false teachers and false believers who have left Christ's church. And how do we know that? Look at verse 18. It says, therefore, we know it is the last hour. Look at verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Look at the end of verse 19. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And so one of the key things for us to recognize here is that we, we have a church experience and a church situation in our, in our present moment where there are many who have come in, they apparently were teachers of the gospel, and then something started to change, something started to happen, and their gospel message changed. In fact, um, I have heard it said that many of the TV preachers today that are so very far off. I'm not talking about faithful guys who happen to be on media that are, that are solid and, and grounded in the Word of God, but I am talking about a very large number, a larger number, um, that are unfaithful to God and that are all part of perhaps the prosperity gospel or other gospels that are being preached and taught, social gospels, various other things. Many of them started off with the true gospel. Many of them were taught the true gospel as children and then departed from it. Not all of them, but many of them. And so what we see is false teachers wind up going away from the true gospel, which is where we get the word apostate. And then we see believers who apparently, um, it appeared that they had received Christ, 
But then as time went on, we look at their life, we look at their beliefs, we look at their behavior, and we come to see them departing from the true gospel. There have been many times when I have looked through the pictorial directories of the past of this church and been very burdened about that. People that early on appeared to proclaim Christ, that appeared to be faithful to Christ, faithful to the gospel, at least they were present and at least they said the right things. But as time went on, they came to no longer follow Christ. They came to no longer believe and to practice that which the gospel says. And I, my heart is very often grieved, and, it, and that causes me um, to really pray for you and for me that we would be faithful to the gospel. And I believe that that's part of what John is calling us to see and to be warned of. But we're going to see a few things that he does here that are important. Let's notice the next statement here. Antichrist reject that God came in the flesh as the saving Christ. That's what they reject. They reject that he indeed was Messiah. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Beloved, do not, be do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many, what does it say? False prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Verse 3, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world, what? Already. So, I mean, I, I think that it would be appropriate Cultural Christianity a lot of times doesn't study eschatology very much. They just kind of, woo, Antichrist, what is that about? You know, I'm scared of that. Well, listen, even a bigger woo is that his spirit is here. His spirit is on the earth today. And his spirit is infiltrating churches today. And so we may even be able to, to ask ourselves, and we, and we should ask ourselves, is, is his spirit in me? I need to ask that. You need to ask that. Is the spirit of rebellion against God holding out? Maybe I'm present. Maybe I'm here. Maybe I'm kind of skating along and, I, you know, and I'm, I'm maybe doing the cultural Christianity thing. But have I not been transformed by the true gospel? Because the true gospel is safe in Christ. But if you're skating with the world, if you're loving, that's why John just finished saying, do not love the world. Anyone who loves the world is not with God. And then, he's, then the very next part is the, all of this talk about the Antichrist. Because what we see is, you see, if you're loving the world, then your heart is rebelling against God. And so John knows exactly what he's doing here through the power of the Holy Spirit, obviously inspired him to write this. This is God's message for us through John. And we see this great warning that the Antichrist and the spirit of rebellion is alive and well in the church today. That should sober us. That should sober every one of us. 
Notice the next part here. This passage is not only it's clarifying that rejection, but look at the next part. This passage is an explanation of why some had left faith in Jesus and his church. So the Apostle John is writing to churches that some of the people are disillusioned. Some of the church members are really upset because they say, well, why did our friends leave? And why did they go off and believe this? And why did they go off and believe that? And golly, are we in the truth? Look at all these that left. Am I really believing the right thing? And that's what John is wanting to say to them. (laughs) You have the gospel. Hold on to the gospel. Stay in the truth. Don't go with them. It's okay. He's explaining why they left. Because there was perhaps a, a concern or a heartbreak or a questioning. And so this is, this is part of the natural. So this is, that's what this explanation that we're studying now, 18 through 25, is. But look at the third one here. This passage is a warning. It's a warning for true Christians against being deceived. That's why John has it here. So that we would say, well, well let's be very aware that the Antichrist the, the, the false teachers are among us, and there's going to be false believers that are among us that are, that are not going to hold on to what they heard and what they taught and what they appeared to believe at a time. Notice Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12 through 15. Hebrews is all about staying with Christ. Hebrews is all about the perseverance of faith in, in God. Notice Hebrews 3 and verse 12 through 15. Take care, brothers. Underline that. Take care. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. You say, well, how do I I deal with that? Even as we read this, maybe for some of you, you would say, wow, I've had an unbelieving heart. And you repent of that and you run to Jesus. That's what, that's what true Christians do. That's what, that's what the elect do. That's what those who are called out of darkness into the light, that's what they do. They hear a warning like this and they run to safety as opposed to continuing in rebellion. So take, brother, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you and in any of you an unbelieving, evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Look at verse 13. But exhort one another every day. That's why you need a church. And Hebrews even says in Hebrews 25, 10, 25, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And so that's because you need to encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So look at verse 13. Same message he's saying. But exhort one another every day. That's why you need church members. As long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Look at verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confession firm to the end. That is called the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is a very important doctrine that says those who are truly know God are going to stay with God till the end. They're not going to leave him. That's how you know whether somebody is saved. Were were they with him to the end? Look at verse 15. 
As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So it kind of breaks into poetry there and a quote of poetry that they would have recognized. And he says, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So even as I'm reading that, preaching that, for some of you today, maybe you need to say, man, God's Spirit is convicting me that I've, I've actually been rebellious to Him. Maybe I've been here. Maybe I've been in church all my life, or maybe I've been in church for the last five weeks, and it, whatever. But, but God is convicting you to, to forsake your sin. He's convicting you to leave your sin and leave your unbelief or leave your loving the world, and He's convicting you to cast all of your heart, hope, and faith upon Christ and Christ alone. That's what it means to become a Christian. That's what it means to trust in Christ, to come and leave this world and to embrace the Messiah who saves us in his righteousness and his grace. And so, friend, I call you to that faith today. Look at the next point here. This passage is not only a warning, but it's also a consolation. It's a consolation for true Christians found in Christ's very carefully, look what it says, Christ keeping grace. We often talk about Christ saving grace. That he will not only save you, but he'll also do what? He'll keep you. You don't keep yourself. He keeps you. And so you trust in that. You say, well, you know, we're called to obey. We're called to have faith. We're called to believe. We're called to press. All of that is true. But we do that through the grace and the power of Christ, through his spirit. Look at John chapter 10 and verse 27. He keeps us, Jesus is speaking here in this passage, and look what he says in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. Underline it. And they follow me. You see that? They follow him. They, they stay with him. They don't just go off somewhere else. They follow me. Verse 28. I give them eternal life. Say amen. amen. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Look at this. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given, given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So he says, my hand, then he says the Father's hand, and then look at verse 30. Let's read verse 30 out loud together. I and the Father are one. You see, this is, this is all evidence of who Jesus is. He is the Christ coming to pay for the sins of the world. And he keeps his children. And he keeps them beautifully. And my friends, this consolation can keep the true Christian and just say, man, it's by faith that I'm saved and it's by faith that I'm kept in him that little letter of Jude that we talked about a few moments ago, at the very end, the last two verses of the book of Jude are called a doxology or a praise. And I want you to see what he says in Jude, how he ends that letter of warning of apostasy. Look what it says in verse 24, written to true believers. And he says in verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to what? Present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. 
verse 25, and to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You see, he's worthy of that praise because of his power and his grace together that saves us and keeps us in him. And that's what John wants for the early church. And that's what John wants for this church. That we would not love the world, that we would realize that the spirit of rebellion is in the world all around us. And that we would look deeply at our own heart and ask, Am I in you, God? Am I in faith in you? Am I in faith in your salvation? Am I in faith that your way is the best way? Am I finding encouragement in the body of Christ to stay with Jesus and to not leave? That's part of the reason our church emphasizes koinonia, you getting to know people, you having friends here, you having relationships here, because the world's pretty tough and Satan is very crafty. And he will deceive you, and as Hebrews talked about, he will pull you away. But when you have brothers and sisters in Christ, God has designed the church to help keep you in him. It's not just you and God and the Holy Spirit, and that's it. But the true message of the Bible, it's always about God and his people. And so his nation of Israel, nation of the church, this beautiful fulfillment of his grand plan in all of that. We see God and his people. And so that's this beautiful picture. Now, a couple of key questions for you to apply this. Number one, think about this this week. How is this passage a wake-up call or a warning to your own relationship with Christ? How is this passage, and we could also say this sermon, this message, a wake-up call to your own relationship with Christ? I believe that if you will study carefully the warnings of 1 John, that it will serve you very well, that your faith will be warned and your faith will grow, that in a spirit of obedience you can say, I want to be careful that I'm not loving, in the world, loving the world. I want to be careful that I'm not hating my brother. I want to be careful that the love of God and the redemption of God is ruling my life. In 1 Peter it says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. These things are very important for true Christians. The second one that I believe that is very appropriate for you to think about is number two. Do you need to clearly renew your commitment to Christ and his church? I believe that. Don't pack up. Don't pack up. Just think about that first. No, really. Do you need to really think about are you committed to Christ and his church? Are you committed to staying in the truth? Because if you are, that is a gift from God. Rejoice in it. But I want to encourage you that if you would, if you would find that that is in question, then that is time to run to God. Time to run to God.
Let's stand together for prayer. Father, I pray that this morning, that even as we stand and, Lord, as we take just a moment and consider this message, I pray, Father, that we would be honest with you and with ourselves and with the people around us. That we would ask you, Lord, to come and reveal unbelief, that you would reveal rebellion in our hearts, and that we would run to that thing that we were singing about a few moments ago, grace, 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 that, Lord, that we would run to your mercy and your grace and say, Lord, please, let me drink of your grace. Let me receive, Lord, your hope. Let me receive your help. Lord, I know that all of us deal with the flesh. All of us deal with the temptations and the draw of this earthly life. Lord, the mentalities of our own mind and heart that can be selfish. And even as redeemed people sometimes, we, we truly struggle with these things. And Lord, that you've called us to continually come to the cross for cleansing. You've called us to continue to come to the table of the Lord that paid the price for all of our sin. Lord, I pray that we would find the victory over sin and self that you have intended. Lord, not in our own might, but Lord, by your power and by your spirit. Lord, I pray for those who maybe have never truly come to faith in Jesus today. I pray that today would be the last day of unbelief. I pray that today, even at this moment, that they would say, Lord, I recognize that you are the Messiah from God, that you came to the earth, you laid down your life, you rose again that I might live. And today, I want to come and turn to you to receive you, repent of my sin and follow after you. Lord, I pray for that prayer in the hearts of people today. If you prayed that prayer just now, or if you need to pray that prayer right now, I pray that you would, that you would say, Lord, here I am. Take me. Take all of my sin. Take who I am. Let today be the last day of rebellion for my heart. Lord, take me. Receive me. I hope that you won't leave today without telling me or telling one of the others, today I received the Lord. Today I turn to the Lord. Father, I pray that we as Christians would be encouraged that you keep your children. We are called to stay in your word, to not harden our hearts, to continually run to you, to love you and not the things of the world that are passing away. Lord, I pray, oh God, that you would cause our church to be filled with people who love you, and love you more than this world that's passing away. In Jesus' name we pray.